Welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dolwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're heading up into the dusty old attic to discuss a 1980s horror film, The Changeling. I thought all attics were dusty. At least mine is anyway. Yeah, who keeps their attic dust-free anyway? Uh, I imagine people who perhaps use their attics as bedrooms or and also i mean if you're going to perhaps lock a, a child up in the attic indefinitely perhaps the child before they die might keep it clean but we're getting into spoiler territory anyway before we get into all that dusty spooky stuff what's going on well i'd like to put a shout out to anybody who's interested in making a submission for the next issue of the blasphemous home you've got a couple of months to write up something of that will be of great interest for everybody or or hit us with some wonderful art submissions should be up to about 500 words and of interest to fans of the show and call of cthulhu players in general and if you want to contact us with your submissions please send them to submissions at blasphemoustomes.com and I would like to say thank you to everyone who was involved with A Weekend with Good Friends. So this is the now increasingly regular convention that our lovely listeners have put together on our behalf, running on the Discord server. And we had an awful lot of games this time, an awful lot of players, and I'm happy to say it was a great success. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all the people who actually made it a success. For a start, thank you very much to the convention organisers, Martin, Benzer and Chris. The amount of work that these three put in was heroic. And thank you to both Wizard and John for all the work that they put in on setting up the forms that people used to offer games and sign up for them. And that just transformed the running of the con this time. And thank you so much to everyone who helped out with the running of the convention, with answering questions, with sorting out problems for people, and generally answering tickets. So that's Al, Max, Mike Diamond, Nikki, and Rena. Rena especially answered an amazing number of tickets. So, yes, thank you so much to all of you. And thank you very much, of course, to everyone who ran a game at the convention and all the new people who signed up and joined in games at the con and have stayed around on the Discord server to become part of our strange little community there. And if somebody wanted to get onto our Discord server, Scott, how would they do that? We have links in a number of places on our website, blasphemoustomes.com, and I'll be sure to put a link in the show notes as well. And before we get stuck into the changeling, I'd just like to mention that the finale of Season 1 of Ain't Slayed Nobody, their Yawl of Cthulhu arc, comes out on the same day as this episode. And if you haven't listened to it yet, well, for a start you should, but also... You might hear my voice creeping onto the episode in a little guest spot. Enjoy. And now on to our main topic, The Changeling. So The Changeling was a 1980 horror film made in Canada that combined a sort of classic ghost story setup with perhaps some lighter elements of a political thriller. And it came out at a time when horror cinema, at least some horror cinema, was semi-respectable before the very lurid days of 80s direct-to-video stuff. So this was in the wake of things like, well, obviously The Exorcist some years back, but perhaps more pertinently things like The Omen. And I can't remember what this predated The Shining, or it was roughly contemporary with it. So it was at a time when critics were actually taking horror cinema perhaps a bit more seriously than they had before and certainly than they would later in the 80s. It was largely well received by critics at the time and won a number of Genie Awards, the Canadian equivalent of the Oscars or the BAFTAs. This was probably helped by the presence of George C. Scott in the lead, whose presence led a degree of gravitas. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. He, uh, he does bring a lot to the role. 
The script was written by playwright Russell Hunter, not a name admittedly I'm, I'm familiar with, who supposedly based it on his own experiences of living in the Henry Treat Rogers mansion in Denver, Colorado. I wonder if this is almost like a filming parallel to the equivalent of Mark Morrison having based his experiences for the Cracked and Crooked Mance on a place where he lived. Huh. I mean, when it says it was supposedly based on his own experiences... I mean, what experiences did this guy have? Is it just the experience of a big old house or, like, hauntings? Maybe he got chased around the house by a wheelchair as well. <laughs> yeah, apparently, no, there was a, a seance and all sorts of weird stuff happening, and I think some of the events that he uses in the film were supposedly things that had happened right. in the house. There's a bit about it in IMDb and on the Wikipedia page, if you're interested in finding out more. It's one of these things that strikes me as being the kind of thing a publicist comes up with when the film's coming out, but I don't know, maybe there's more to it. Maybe I'm being unduly cynical, but I'm not. Well, they didn't even say based on a true story at the start, you know. They missed the trick. Yeah, I know. Has there ever been a film, a horror film at least, that said based on a true story at the beginning that was actually based on a true story? Amityville Horror? Uh, no, that definitely was not. That was the uh, the Warrens. I thought there were events that took place there because I thought there was a murder. There were events that took place there, but it was the Warrens who were the same people who the Conjuring films were made about, who supposedly investigated that. And they were the biggest fucking charlatans out there. They made all that shit up. So no, you can say that it was based on a true story, but it wasn't. <laughs> They've been fairly roundly debunked in the press for years afterwards and yeah the Amityville story has been shot down over and over again the Hungarian director Peter Medak took over the film at the last minute his subsequent career has been varied in both film and television but he's returned to the horror genre a few times with The Babysitter Cry for the Strangers and Species 2 as well as episodes of The Twilight Zone Masters of Horror and Hannibal is The Babysitter the recent Netflix film no, this was one that was made around the same time as the Changeling. Uh. It's not one I've seen, but from the little bits I read about it, I can't remember. I think it might even have been made for television. I was going to say, if it was the one I was thinking of from Netflix, then that's a very different tonal type of film to this. <laughs> Yeah, but his career was all over the place. I mean, he made comedies, action films, thrillers, so... If anything, this tonally is something of an outlier for him. Mm. Now let's dig into the story of The Changeling. Well, it's a snowy day in upstate New York. The Russell family push their broken-down car into a lay-by. The father, John, goes into a conveniently placed phone booth to call for help. It's a phone booth in the middle of nowhere. What the hell? It's just completely random. I mean, what's a phone booth even? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this was made during the late 70s. I mean, it was shot, I guess, in 79. And back in those days, there weren't mobile phones. So, yes, there were phone booths and payphones all over the place. Just, it just really struck me as weird that there was one on this really isolated road in the middle of nowhere. But anyway... Mm. A truck skids into Johanna and Kathy, that's his wife and daughter respectively, and John watches helplessly as apparently the door of the phone booth just will not open despite him <sighs> trying to rip the thing off its hinges by the look of it. Yeah. Uh, that actually I could sort of identify with because he's in a panic. I'm sure we've all been in that state of mind where just we're flustered and we try to open a door that's supposed to be pulled open by pushing it or whatever. And I guess if you're in a blind panic like that, it just gets worse and worse. The main source of panic for me there would be why all of a sudden when this truck's ploughing towards them, all of a sudden there's no body for his wife or daughter. <laughs> Do they just vanish in a budgetary cut moment of, uh, <laughs> yeah. we need to reduce the money spend here because they couldn't even afford Gene Marsh for more than one scene. <laughs> it's a horrific accident with no gore or even like collision scene or anything mm. really. You see the truck sort of crashing into the ship, but that's all really. I guess that's a point generally with the film. We say it's a horror film, but this isn't a film with any blood, guts or gore whatsoever in it. Yeah, it's a hell of a lot more about atmosphere and tension and such. And oh, I love it. And back in New York City, the contents of the Russell apartment are packed up, including a bouncy ball that belonged to his daughter. I'm, you know, I'm sure it's not like we're going to see that again. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, it's just purely random. They threw that yeah. in. Yeah, I mean, it yeah. even had its own flashback origin story. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> John, now that he's packed up, then moves to Seattle, where he has taken a teaching job at the local university there, teaching music. He is at a dinner with uh, some friends, and one of the friends there suggests that if he's looking for somewhere to live, the local historical society has properties that they rent. This is like no historical society I've ever been to, because normally their most expensive asset is a overhead projector and a box of slides. Well, what the <laughs> hell historical society has property portfolio, for heaven's sake? If you want a creepy old house to live in, where else are you going to go? Exactly. But yeah, I think this is very much along the lines of what the playwright was talking about, because I believe that's what he did, that he went to this historical house, this old mansion that he was staying in, which I think was managed by historical society. So that bit is true to life. And I mean, you say that, you know, historical societies and the like don't rent places like that out. I have rented somewhere like that before not long term but for a weekend there is i can't remember who it is but there's certainly a british society that rents historic properties for short-term leases usually for events and you know, some years back a group of friends and myself uh, rented the old observatory building on top of a hill in edinburgh and had a, our own weekend private gaming convention there in this sort of creepy old Victorian observatory, isolated up on this hill. It was great. Mm. Hey, John meets Claire Norman outside a spooky old house, which has been empty for 12 years, and John decides he can work in peace here. He says he just wants to lock himself away and get on with his composing. The society does have some work to do on the house, admittedly, but John moves in. This is the music room. This is really why I thought of you in this house. The piano was left here when the society took over, just too much trouble to move, really. It must be in very bad shape. What are the terms? we see John at work. He's there composing on the piano, recording his work on this reel-to-reel tape recorder. And he takes a little break and wanders away, and then the piano carries on playing by itself. Mm. Well, one note, admittedly. <laughs> yeah, that's still one more note than it should have played, unless it's a player <laughs> piano. Now, this is the first really supernatural thing we see in the film and i think there's a fairly quick escalation here mm. it sort of surprised me going back and watching this game because i i saw this at the cinema in 1980 when it first came out and i haven't seen it since so watching it again i'd remembered a lot of the beats in there but i was kind of surprised at how quickly it ramped up a lot of the supernatural elements it, i mean it's not like sort of in your face ghosts jumping out of closets or whatever but it doesn't take long to get moving. That's one thing I really like about it, that there's none of this really kind of boring eat your greens, we've got to have all the obligatory setup. Pretty much every scene in the film contributes to the overall story, that there's not really any kind of dead space or stuff that you think, yeah, I could really kind of cut this scene out, it doesn't really add anything to it. It's, it's all a nice cohesive whole. I think it's paced brilliantly. I mean, it, I don't like films where it's, oh, I know it's a horror film, but I've got to wait half an hour for it to get to something interesting or supernatural. It's almost like, bang, you, you hit the ground running, besides the, the opening scene with the, with the family getting killed. Yeah, I'd agree. But at the same time, it's not a fast-paced film. It's quite, I'd yeah. say, the first third... It's quite slow. It's quite a slow burn. Yeah, you do get little bits like this. It's well-paced, but it's not fast-paced, and it's not action, it's not gore, it's not jump scares and all that stuff. But it's, like you say, Matt, it's well put together. I wouldn't maybe have said slow. I would have said consistent, because when I watched it the first time, I was quite happy that it kept going on at the same kind of rate. Mm. Maybe it escalates a little bit towards the end, but otherwise I thought it was fairly consistent. I sort of found the first quarter to a third, I don't know exactly. I mean, I was engaged with it, but it was fairly slow and i thought if it carries on like this i'm not sure it's really going to grab me but then 
it like oh actually this is really creepy now there's there's certain mm. scenes where it's like oh this is really good so at the concert john meets claire and her mother they are interrupted when senator carmichael makes a speech raising money for the orchestra claire mentions he is a financial supporter of the historical society from a storytelling point of view as matt says this is a very efficient script so you know that everything that's introduced like that is going to have some payoff mm. and so it's not just random that you've got this senator making a speech there obviously this is laying groundwork for later on from a role-playing point of view, laying those seeds, laying that groundwork is a very effective trick. Yeah? You want to make sure that if an NPC is going to be important later on in the game, that the player characters have got a chance to perhaps encounter them, learn who they are, that it's not just someone necessarily who comes out of left field, unless it's important they do come out of left field, but... Establishing the reality of a character like that is, uh, I think, a really important bit of storytelling. The following morning, John is awoken by a banging throughout the house, and boy, is it loud. Later, while he's working, because he just seems to ignore it, there's no real follow-up, it's just, hey, there's a loud bang. Next scene, a few hours later. While he's working, a door opens by itself behind him, and we hear the whispering of a child's voice upstairs. You say he just ignores it, but I don't think that's unreasonable. I mean, for example, I did, it hasn't happened for some time, but for a little while I did have an airlock in my pipes and they did make some odd banging, groaning sounds. And eventually it sorted itself out. But you get used to houses making sounds like this. My parents' old house in Dundee, the central heating used to make some horrendous noises. But you just adapt to that. And your first thought, unless you're particularly unusual, I guess, isn't going to be, all oh, the house is haunted. No, I've got similar things here. We have like a draft that goes through the house that makes some of the doors upstairs bang in the middle of the night. And I'm not thinking, oh, it's haunted. It's just that bloody vent at the front of the house i need to block and never get around to doing it but this sounds like he's got a whole timpani drum set from an orchestra up in his attic that's going bam 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 <laughs> and it's not your average pipe noise yeah the sound is really good so claire pops over with some old pictures of the house which i'm half expecting the end of the shining with the you know you've always been here <laughs> sir she finds <laughs> kathy's ball da, 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 in john's desk which upsets John, and the next morning, John cries in bed as the banging starts again. Mr. Tuttle, or is that Buttle, <laughs> the handyman, thinks it's an airlock in the pipes, but John's unconvinced. Yeah, Mr. Tuttle, he's a very down-to-earth fella. He just tries to rationalise it away, as you would, as we've said. Yeah, if the first thing your handyman suggests is, well, clearly, sir, your house is haunted, you'd probably get another handyman, wouldn't you? <laughs> But it's at 6am, it's regular, the duration's about the same, the rhythm's the same. John seems a hell of a lot more convinced that something weird is happening, even at this stage. That evening, John has invited a number of other musicians round, and they've been playing together, and he's offering notes. And, and then, as he ushers them all out, he goes round and finds that someone, apparently, has left a number of taps on in the house. Well, first of all, the kitchen tap, and then he goes round and eventually finds his way upstairs and finds the tap on in the bathroom. And as he's switching that off, he then has a vision of a child drowning in the bathtub. And he fails his sand roll. <laughs> I, I love how he just walks very calmly and silently just backwards out of the bathroom and down the corridor. <laughs> At the Historical Society, John asks Claire if there's anything like this has happened before. Another society member, Minnie Huxley, who definitely has that kind of vibe of, I'm the person you really don't want around here. I'm the, the person that's going to put a spanner in your works voices concerns about the status of John's lease. Uh, she says the house doesn't want people. Yes, this is a great character, a great NPC. You know, when yeah. I watch films like this, I'm always on the lookout for, like, characters you can bring in as NPCs, <laughs> and she's great. It's not like you immediately think, oh, she's bad, you know, like a, an enemy or uh, whatever, but... Certainly antagonistic. Yeah, and she sort of introduces a very disturbing kind of vibe. Then later, as John is leaving the house, a window shatters. 
He looks back up at the old house and he matches the red piece of glass that he finds to the glass in the attic and he, he heads up there. Yeah, I thought he was going to find a locked room here, but he kind of finds like a, it seemed like a cupboard, but then he sort of pulls a load of stuff away and there's actually a door there behind all this clutter mm. and it's been boarded up and he tears that down to be able to get into this dusty old attic room, which is full of cobwebs. And there's this small desk and a wheelchair and like a small wheelchair, which suggests this was a, a child's room. And he finds a desk. And on the desk, he finds a book labelled CSB, January 1909. And he also finds a musical box, which plays the melody he thought he had been composing on the piano earlier. That must be some music box if it's been laying there for about 70 years <laughs> and still works the first time he opens the lid. Yeah, craftsmanship, Matt, craftsmanship. <laughs> Spooky craftsmanship. One of the things I like about John as a character in this is the fact that he is a bit more proactive than a lot of players that I've encountered, in that there is no hesitation at all when he finds this door that's been boarded up and the shelves are over it. There's no, oh, yeah, perhaps we better do some research first or let's listen at the door and make sure there's nothing there or I better call someone up and I don't want to do this alone. No, he just goes in there and without a moment's hesitation just starts tearing shit down, you know, ripping the boards off the door, throwing everything out and, and getting in there. And equally remarkable is that he keeps going back to the house. You know, he's mm. living there on his own. It's clearly haunted or bad stuff is happening there. At times, you know, is he is endangered by it. But, you know, well, that's where I'm staying. I'll just go back. He doesn't seem to question that, really. What's established about his character or the character arc is he starts off with this tragedy. He starts off losing his wife and child. So I think that there is this innate connection to death though it's never stated outright i think the fact that he's experiencing all this evidence of some kind of life beyond death might be perversely comforting to someone like that i mean yes all right having a ghost around is scary perhaps and these are unsettling events but at the same time this has got to be some kind of proof to him that perhaps he hasn't lost his wife and daughter forever Thinking of also the uh, the composition of the scene, there's a great moment where he almost pulls this uh, hammer from nowhere and starts <laughs> hammering at the padlock that's been put on the door that he's uh, oh, yeah. revealed after yeah, yeah. pulling the boards down. And that as he's hammering away at it, it's that same timpani drum, bang, 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 yes. is going in time with his hammering of the lock. So later downstairs, John and Claire listen to the music box, playing it alongside the recording that John has made of his composition, and they're identical note for note, and they just play alongside each other perfectly. Claire tries to rationalise about this, saying that perhaps it was some popular tune from long ago that he'd forgotten, and this is cryptomnesia or something like that. But John is adamant that there is something in the house that is trying to communicate with him. Have either of you two ever had any experiences with cryptomnesia? I've seen it come up as a device in fiction before, but myself, I've never experienced it. Really? Oh, God, I have problems with it all the time. Is that where you have a memory of something? Well, if something happens and you... Anyway, what is it? Yeah. It's where you have experienced a, a story or a tune or something like that in the past and forgotten about it and it comes back into your mind and you think it's an original thought. So you, you might think, oh, well, I've had this fantastic idea for a scene or a story or a scenario or something like that. Sit down, work it with it, and then realise that actually, no, this was some film that you saw 30 years ago that you've forgotten about and you're just rewriting the whole damn thing. I think I just get the amnesia altogether and just don't remember <laughs> that it was something I saw 30 years ago. So no, it's not something that rings a bell with me. All right. No, it's something I'm incredibly paranoid about because I seem to be very prone to it. And I'm always worried that I'm just unconsciously ripping stuff off. I just rip it off. I don't <laughs> worry about it too much. It's because you consume so much media, Scott. There's only so much room in that head. In fact, it's like a dusty old attic up there, <laughs> just filled with <laughs> random shit. I seem to have more of the Homer Simpson approach to memory. It's like one piece mm. of information goes out and then something's got to make room, so it falls out the other side. One day I'm going to wake up and not remember how to drive. <laughs> In the attic, Claire comments that the book belonged to a child. Evidently, the handwriting is a bit of a giveaway there. And wonders what the room was used for. I keep thinking at this point, she works at a historical society. She's never heard of a disappointments room. 
Mm. That seems a bit kind of, hmm, okay, plot device maybe. There was a story or a film called The Disappointments Room, wasn't there? Uh, it's turned up in a few things. Oh, yeah. But there was something that actually used that as the title. Yeah, I think it was back in 2017 with Kate Beckinsale, and it was a horror mm. film so dreary I gave up halfway through. So what is this matter, Disappointments Room? A Disappointments Room, it, normally they were more prevalent on the East Coast and even then more towards the North. They were places, usually in attics, a lot of them had metal flooring as well so that people couldn't pry up floorboards and try and escape that way and that it was too high up they didn't want to climb out and potentially fall to their death outside, where usually wealthy individuals or wealthy families that had a good degree of station in society, if they had a child which they considered was a disappointment, either whether it be that they were disabled, ill, deformed, or had any kind of mental problem, basically anything that meant they weren't exactly 100% perfect and they couldn't be shown off to the rest of their society friends as being, uh, oh, here, look at our golden boy or girl. They'd literally throw them up in the attic and leave them there. Right. Basically, lots of people who read Jane Eyre and saw it as an instruction manual. Mm. As long as there's a few RPG books up there, I'd be fine, really. (laughs) (laughs) He had a wheelchair, he had a music box, he had someone else's book. What's the problem? After they leave, though, that wheelchair moves very slightly. Ah, yes. So then John and Claire check the Historical Society's records of the house, but find none before 1920. Minnie, our friend from earlier, watches disapprovingly, but mentions that Dr Barnard lived in the house then. The house was sold in 1909, following a family tragedy. (laughs) In time-honoured investigator fashion, John and Claire then go off to the newspaper morgue where they study microfiches. Now, there's something you don't see much anymore. Are they like whiting, just really small fishes? <laughs> yes. Because I, I think anybody under the age of about, I don't know, I'm guessing about 40 probably hasn't got a bloody clue what these things are, have they? It's how you make an attract fish roll with a computer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so microfiches are basically photographs of documents that are put on small rolls of film that you then play through a projector or you shine light through a projector and blow them up again so you can read them. So it's basically an old-fashioned analog way of storing all these vast amounts of documents in a very small amount of room. It's kind of like the internet in black and white. <laughs> and no search function. Yeah. <laughs> That's one thing I never, ever grasp, because when you see this come up in films, they always suddenly go... They're blitzing through these things at ridiculous speed and then just so happen to land on the article they need. That's the library use role, Matt. (laughs) Yeah. The reason for that, Matt, is really simple. Because doing it realistically would look shit on film. (laughs) You could do a montage scene. (laughs) No, that'd be dull. Right. So anyway, carry on. But yes, anyway, they clearly pass their library use role and the keeper gives them a handout. In 1909, seven-year-old Cora Bernard was hit by a coal cart outside the house and died sometime later. John realises that this means she died in a fairly similar manner to his daughter, Cathy. Hmm... And again, this goes back to this whole idea of his family tragedy being a hook into all this. Now, as we'll see, the film obviously diverges from that quite drastically as this goes on, but there's still that element of him having lost a child and now trying to help a dead child. So I think that kind of personal hook is something that, again, works very well in RPGs. It's something, certainly with convention games, I strive for. How easy is it, do you think, to try to work stuff like this into campaigns, or particularly pre-written campaigns? Is this something that you've ever managed to pull off, or is it just something that you tend to have to leave up to the players? It's something I definitely would like to do more often. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It all depends on the background that you get given by a player for their character and then compared it against the campaign. If if there is no commonality, it's it can feel a bit forced at times. But if there's opportunities where you think, oh, this NPC that they've mentioned in their background, this could be this NPC in the campaign, by all means, bake them the same thing and go and mesh them together that way. Here, I think it's definitely, it adds a nice layer to it because it actually gives a kind of reason for him to be invested rather than mm. just oh you're a random guy that showed up at the house and therefore you get to experience all this stuff it feels nice and cohesive 
I think if this were a game, then uh, and the player had written their character and they just sort of said they were a divorced guy who had a wife and child, you might sort of suggest, well, actually, rather than just being divorced, how about, you know, before the game started, how about maybe they were killed in a road accident? Mm. Or you could turn it around the other way. If the character had said that, then you might pick up on that. And maybe this bit about seven-year-old Cora Bernard being hit by a coal cart isn't in the scenario. But you kind of think, oh, actually, that would reflect well with their character. Let's put that in because that kind of that ties their character in. So I think there's got to be, as Keeper, you can either change your scenario to fit your players a bit or make suggestions to the players about their backgrounds because you know what's going to come in the, in the campaign. Just sort of create hooks both ways to tie the two together a bit. Yeah, and as you mentioned earlier, Paul, the logical reaction you'd think in the situation which John finds himself would be just to get the hell out of that house. I mean, he doesn't own it, he's leasing it, he could probably find somewhere else fairly easily, Mm -hmm. and it is getting steadily creepier and creepier. And I think a lot of people in that situation, if that situation were possible, would just leave or try to get out of there as quickly as possible. But the fact that he does have this background, does have these ties, is that all-important reason that you have in games. Why would my character stay around and do this? Why would they investigate? Why would they get involved with this? Why wouldn't they just run for the hills? Because otherwise the credits roll 20 minutes in. (laughs) Back at the house, Kathy's ball, remember that ball, bounces down the staircase in front of John. He takes the ball to a bridge, and after looking at it a bit longingly for a minute, just lets it drop out of his fingers and it splashes into the water. And then when he returns home, the now soggy ball comes bounce, bounce, bouncing down the stairs because you can't keep a good ball down. What? How can that happen? That's just not possible, Matt. That's not possible. <laughs> Make a sand check. I never, I never thought that was going to happen. <laughs> I mean, this is one of those things, a bit like the ending of Lovecraft stories, where it's kind of flagged up. You're kind of expecting it. But it's still kind of effective and creepy, but you've kind of anticipated it. But that's fine. This particular scene or variations of this scene have turned up in a lot of films since then. Mm. But this was the first time I remember seeing this image in a film. Certainly when I saw it at the cinema when I was 15 years old, this scared the shit out of me. Now, obviously, it doesn't have the same impact on me for a variety of reasons. But... I think it's one of these images that's probably been so used since then that it's been diluted. There was this real shock of the news seeing it at the time, which I don't think you can really experience anymore, which is a shame. And it was also interesting going back to this scene in that in my memory, there was a lot more to it than that. There was perhaps more of a build-up, more repetitions or whatever. And I've forgotten how brief the whole thing was, that he's sitting there working, the ball bounces down, he picks it up. Almost immediately, he's in the car, driving out to the bridge, chucks it over. And I thought, mm, OK, that's actually quite sudden. That's quite compact. I, I thought this was going to be longer. There was going to be more to it. But no, I mean, that's like 30 seconds. Mm-hmm. Now, like any good investigator, John contacts the psychic research facility of the university. Fantastic. We know we're in for some good (laughs) stuff now. A medium and her husband come to the house to perform a seance. John records the the session on his reel-to-reel tape player as the medium attempts automatic writing. Now, this is quite an unusual type of seance with Mm. this automatic writing. It's not something we usually see. So she's kind of got a, a pen or a pencil and she's got a big wadge of paper in front of her and she just kind of scrawls on it you know this automatic writing thing without sort of thinking it's just sort of channeling spirits or whatever and the guy next to her just pulls the top page off as she finishes so she can write on the next one so it, it just kind of goes on and on that's that's quite a dramatic device i think visually that worked very well Automatic writing is fascinating because, I mean, not only is there this spiritualist aspect of it here, but that sort of bled over into the surrealist movement. And there was a a lot of sort of artistic versions of this that came out where people would use it as a means for tapping into their unconscious. This was paralleled by automatic art as well. And... I can't remember whether I've mentioned him on the podcast before. There was an artist called Austin Osmond Spare who used automatic artwork as a sort of occult practice, as a magical practice, creating these artworks that were these combination of 
art and divinations or ways of touching whatever was beyond. And I think that's a fantastic thing to bring into a scenario. During the seance, a child makes contact, but it's not Cora. It's a boy called Joseph who wants John to help him. And when they try speaking to him, he smashes a glass and goes for a sulk in the attic. What is in this house? Speak to John. John is with us. How did you die? Did you die in this house? Why do you remain in this house, Joseph? How did you die? Joseph, did you die in this house? It is a very strange setup for a seance because you've got the, the automatic writing section and then they decide, right, we'll do a more traditional thing. We'll hold hands around a table with this giant metal cone. Mm. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sat on the middle of the table that just kind of rocks back and forth and then that kind of slams down. That's what smashes a glass and then he goes for a huff by closing the door back up in the attic. Yeah. What the hell is that cone there for? <laughs> that was cool. I don't know what that was for, but it was a... It was a great visual thing. Are seances and stuff like that things that you've ever used in your games? I set a game down in Casadega in Florida around the spiritualist commune there, so it definitely featured quite a bit in that scenario. Yeah, I mean, certainly I'm always attracted to doing stuff like this in games as well. But obviously in Call of Cthulhu, there's the complication that if you're playing an absolutely sort of purist Lovecraftian interpretation, there aren't necessarily ghosts. But you can use seances and mediums and so on as, as means for contacting all sorts of other things that people might just assume are ghosts. Later, John plays back his recording of the session. Again, this wonderfully big reel-to-reel tape recorder that doesn't date the film at all. Passing his listen roll, he hears EVP responses to questions. These include little phrases or statements like, Can't walk. My father. Sacred heart. My medal. Are you the child killed by the coal cart? No. We are here to help you. What is your name? What is your name? What is your name? Do you want to explain what EVP is, Matt? Electronic voice phenomena. This thing that can, admitted the cynic in me says, can very easily be faked. And Eve actually does come up as a plot point later on. They say, well, tape recordings can be faked, can't they? Where you record a session like the scene that you've had with the medium doing automatic writing, and then her husband will then read out what she's written. In this case, you have the medium asking the question and then this ghostly voice giving the answer before the husband then repeats what she's written on the paper. This voice from nowhere that only comes out on recording. Well, I think it's more than just that it can be faked, particularly if you've got something like a reel-to-reel tape recorder or anything where there's got to be background hiss and noise and so on. The human brain is a fantastic pattern-matching engine that goes wrong in all sorts of spectacular ways, and we are very prone to finding meaning in randomness. So white noise or whatever on a tape, yeah, of course, we're going to hear voices in there and assign meaning to them, even if there isn't any there to be found. In fact, there are a whole couple of films about white noise one of which was even vaguely watchable. (laughs) Debatable. (laughs) I said, I did say vaguely. Now, while listening, John has a vision of Joseph being drowned by his father, fists banging on the side of the bathtub. The same sounds that echoes through the house. He hears my body, the well, my name, Joseph Carmichael. John phones Claire, but passes out midway through the call. Not only has he lost some sand, he's lost some magic points as the ghost has tried to drain them from him to make contact. Yeah, this is this is a good scene. I like this one. But the ghost is quite chatty here, or at least mm. very communicative. 
And this is something I struggle with sometimes in games, that you want to, I think, try to convey information when you have investigators talking to unnatural entities, whether they're ghosts or mythos creatures or whatever. But I often worry that having them being too communicative or too clear, sitting down and having a conversation with Amigo face-to-face or face-to-pulsating brain is, I think, potentially quite deflating. It takes a lot of the mystique and the horror out of it. Isn't that the central scene of The Whisper in Darkness, though? But he doesn't realise that that's what it is. It's the revelation afterwards. If he'd been sitting down there in the room talking to this Migo and she'd just sort of been sitting there looking like a Migo, I think that would have been weird for a scene and then vaguely farcical after that. But it was the fact that it was hiding what it was that made it creepy. Hmm. I think it's a fine line to walk. For me, when I remember when I first saw the film... There's all these little snippets that are thrown at you, and with my hearing not being particularly great, all I kind of hear is <laughs> mumble, 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 something coherent, mumble, mumble, mumble. As far as I was concerned, it was creepy noise. I hadn't got a clue what half of the words were said, and I had when I watched it back and I turned the audio up so I could hear the thing, I could then start to make out individual phrases. Mm. If that's me in a game, I'm thinking, well, if the players haven't made notes about what this thing said, they might have exactly the same problem as I have, that they can't recall exactly everything that's been said. So you've got this kind of half-garbled, half-mysterious conversation, clue-laden as it might be, that maybe they don't take all of it in, and that it is just this weird, freaky experience. Mm. Well, Claire comes round to the two of them listen to the tape, and Claire recalls a Sacred Heart Orphanage, which is now long since closed. John deduces that Joseph Carmichael must have been drowned by his father and replaced with a child from the orphanage. And then Claire spots the wheelchair, which has come out of the attic and is now sitting there at the top of the stairs, as if watching them. Minnie calls the purported Senator Carmichael and warns him that John and Claire are investigating him, digging around in his past. You knew there was something wrong with that one from the start. Over the course of a few scenes, the PCs, I mean uh, John and Claire, piece together some details. Joseph's mother died when he was five. She bequeathed him everything, but if he died before adulthood, then everything would go to charity. Fearing the boy's ill health, his father murdered him, replacing him with an orphan just so he could keep hold of the money. Greed. Mm. It's a great motivator for murder. (laughs) Joseph's body was secretly buried. The orphan was treated, in inverted commas, overseas, returning when he was 18, apparently fully cured. Almost like a new man. (laughs) The passage of time made it easier to pass him off as Joseph. The treatment being that he was previously wheelchair-bound, but now he can walk! Hmm. After some further research, John finds records of a house that was a former ranch owned by the Carmichaels once upon a time that has been built over what might be a well, according to the plans. He contacts Mrs. Gray, the new owner, who reveals that her daughter has been having these weird nightmares about a boy rising up through the floorboards of her bedroom. I love this part because it's very much you turn up at an NPC's house saying, I want to rip up your floorboards and find an old well. And of course, the owner's probably like, no, (laughs) you're not tearing tearing apart my floor. Go the hell away. (laughs) Can I make a persuade roll? No. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, no, except I think here what happens is John pushes his persuade roll and says to the keeper, well, what happens if the daughter's nightmares get worse? (laughs) Mm. She has a bit more encouragement then. And sure enough, that's what happens. But he passes the second role and Mrs. Gray says, yeah, okay, why not? Yeah, <laughs> you come in, let's let's tear up the floorboard. And sure enough, underneath they find the remains of this brick well filled with earth. And as they dig down, they find the bones of a child. And in a great moment that I'm sure would anger Scott if it was a PC in one of his games, they call the police. Yeah, I mean, they call the police, but it's like, okay, let's just set the scene here. We've had chainsaws <laughs> through the floor, floorboards, to sort of like earth below. Then they've dug this pit about six foot deep and found some bones. Now we call the police. The police come round. There's a woman with her daughter, a couple of strange guys with spades looking down a hole. It's like, you found some bones. 
why did you like pull up the floorboards <laughs> and then dig down six feet to find these bones? How did you know they were there? That's going to take some explaining, right? Barely an inconvenience. Well, I think that's, again, something you can steal for your games really well. That's a great way of dealing with what happens when the players call the authorities, which is most of the time the stuff investigators are going to tell the authorities is just so fucking unbelievable that nothing's going to happen. But not satisfied with this, John leaves. But then, uh, you know, in the middle of the night, he starts thinking it over. And he goes back to the house, which is now like taped off as a crime scene or whatever, I think. And he goes back in and starts digging down there in the mud again. And I was kind of half expecting like some hand to come up and grab him or something like that. But no, he digs around in the soil and finds like a medallion. Not really. Oh, it actually rises up out of the earth, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. It rises up out of the earth. And it's there. It's like this little uh, bit like St. Christopher's sort of medallion on a, a little gold chain. Hmm. You get quite a lot of this in this film where John obviously is an active presence who's going off investigating and researching stuff. But a lot of the time, things just get dropped in his lap. Well, in this case, worm their way up through the soil in front of him. Hmm. This is the going on from the point of that he knows he hasn't got any physical evidence because the, the Hainsey can't back up any storage of the police. And this kind of leads into that, that when he takes the medallion back to Claire, she says, well, go to the police with it. He says, well, no, because the police dug around in the well. They couldn't find anything. How are they going to believe me that I went back to the place, broke in, and then miraculously found the thing? Mm. So they're still stuck with this. It's all circumstantial. There's nothing to physically beef up anything, even though the medal does have Joseph's date of birth, name and date of birth on it to kind of prove, in inverted commas, that it was him that was down in the well. So John decides, without being able to go to the police, he's going to do something good like a good old investigator like a bull in a china shop would do. He goes to confront the senator as he goes onto his private jet. Some shit security at that airport, I tell you. It's difficult to remember how different the world was before mm. 2001. Obviously, airport security changed a lot after that. But Well, actually, it changed a lot in the 1970s as well because there were a lot of hijackings, aircraft hijackings in the 1970s, political hijackings particularly. For a long time, airport security was really quite lax. But anyway, the, uh, the senator's rattled by this. So he calls up one of his police contacts, or one of his little puppets in the police force, Captain DeWitt, and then examines an identical medal around his neck. Hmm. Yeah, John returns home, and all of the doors in the house slam shut. John demands to know what the ghost wants from him. Clearly the ghost is guiding him, it's, it's giving him the medal, it wants him to do something. And at that moment, Captain Dimwit turns up, <laughs> telling John... Halfwit, sorry, I got his name wrong. <laughs> Telling John to stop blackmailing the senator. So obviously the senator's called, yeah, as you said, the senator's called some flunky in the police and has got him on his side. And he wants John to return the lost medal. But John tells him to leave and, you know, he's, he's not going to have it. He doesn't have it or whatever. And uh, DeWitt threatens to come back with a warrant. But uh, he's not going to be coming back. <laughs> <laughs> he's got one more scene <laughs> yeah while all this is happening claire arrives and she's in a uh, an absolutely foul mood because she's been forced to resign from the historical society and the historical society are cancelling john's lease and uh, she leaves shortly after that info dump and john looking into a mirror sees the mirror shatter and gets a flash of dewitt in a car accident there hanging upside down meanwhile claire sees the accident or sees the car crashed in the street and phones john to let him know and it seems like the ghost has made the problem go away for them I was a little disappointed with this aspect. I mean, it's creepy, but in terms of a game, if this happened in the game, I'd find it a bit of a damp squib. You're throwing a problem at the players and it's sort of, right, okay, what are you going to do about this? And it's sort of, oh, okay, well, it's all taken care of off screen by, by other forces anyway. And I think there is a bit of that in this film where John is at times, I think, for all his proactiveness in looking for stuff is very much an observer rather than a driving force here he sort of stirred the ghost into action but fundamentally the ghost does most of the stuff he's just there 
I don't know, almost like a cheerleader for it. I think that the difference is that the ghost provides all the clues and it's John who interprets them and puts the narrative together because he does make, uh, on a few instances, quite a few leaps of deduction, mm. piecing it all together, which the ghost can't, or at least the ghost in the narrative. If it did that, then there would be no bloody point of John being in the film. He is very much the one that puts the puzzle pieces together. So I think he does have a function. It's just that it maybe not yeah. be as very much an active one, that it's very much reactionary to all the little pieces he's been given. If I were playing John in a game at this and the keeper was telling me all the cool stuff that the ghost was doing in order to resolve things, and I was just watching the pretty lights, I'd be a bit pissed off. The senator learns what happened to his pet policeman in the car accident. He summons John to his estate, and John tells the senator everything, calling him a changeling. Hey, title drop, everybody drink. <laughs> the senator tries to pay him off just sort of like what do you want you know you know just I'll, I'll write you a check and, and you can leave kind of approach uh wanting to preserve his father's good name but john refuses any money and hands back all the physical evidence that he's collected it's clear that john doesn't really want revenge on this guy it's, the, yeah, it's an interesting kind of uh relationship yeah. and approach and it's perhaps not the one we expected yeah, it's sort of, he sees himself as a messenger, here's the message, I've delivered it, job done. And kind of on your conscience be it, really. Meanwhile, back at the house, Claire hears a voice upstairs, and of course goes up into the attic to investigate. And at this point, the wheelchair comes to life and chases her through the house in one of the film's rare action scenes, eventually just knocking her down the stairs. John? Please. I don't want to come up there. John? I remember finding this quite creepy and, uh, well, not creepy, but quite scary uh, mm. when I saw it at the cinema. Now, I don't know. I I don't think the film is stronger for having the scene in. I mean, it's a nice striking image, but I think it undercuts the general tone of the film. Mm. It does have a certain comedic atmosphere to it. And also, from this point in, this is where you know all the budget in the film was saved for these few scenes coming up. <laughs> yeah. John arrives and tries to confront the ghost, fighting against a gale as he struggles up the stairs. He's blown through the railings, landing under the swinging chandelier as fire consumes the banisters. Yep, all the pyrotechnics are coming out now. And this massive, like, chandelier that we keep seeing, uh, sort of aerial views, looking down on the chandelier and the, yeah. and the stairwell and the, uh, and, the, and the hall below. Well, anyway, yeah, let's see what happens with that. The Chandelier of Damocles. Exactly. <laughs> so meanwhile, back with the senator, he's comparing the medals. The one around his neck and the one that he's got from this guy from the well. And he throws one aside and hangs the other on the painting of his father on his desk. The real Joseph's ghost whispers, Father and my medal, as the desk begins to shake. And we cut back to the house, and there John sees the senator, apparently, climbing the burning stairs. The banging sound starts again, echoing through the house, and the chandelier falls. But happily, John passes his dodge roll and rolls out of the way. 
Claire and John then flee the conflagration. In the attic, the senator has a vision of Joseph's murder, just as we've seen before, being drowned in the bathtub, banging away. Meanwhile, he's also standing at his desk, staring at the painting. As the house explodes, the senator lies dead in his office. John and Claire arrive in time to see the senator's body carried into an ambulance. That ambulance then speeds away, right past the burning house, and you think evidently they care more about the body of a dead senator than they do about the burning of a historical landmark. Uh. <laughs> well, traditionally, ambulance crews don't put out fires. Well, the emergency services in general, they couldn't give a shit. They've just left the house to burn while they think, oh, we've got to pick up a body first. I mean, it seems fair enough, to be honest with yeah. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. The next morning, the house is in ruins, just rubble, and the music box opens and begins to play that little tune. That is one hell of a music box. Yeah, magical artifact right there. But this sort of, I think, is classic 70s and 80s horror cinema. It sort of leave on that that one stinger. And it's not just the fact that it's there being creepy, but it's just saying, yeah, okay, we're leaving the option there in case we want to do a sequel. So, I mean, I think it stood up pretty well. It's the first time I've seen this film. I must say, I thought, I think partly because the lead actor is in this film, I think he's about about our age, Scott. Yeah, I'd say he's in his mid-50s. He's quite old to be the father of the young girl at the start, but it's not by no means uh, incredible, Mm. but equally he could be their grandfather. And my impression of the film, because of him and the pacing, it felt like it could almost be a film from an earlier period. It felt like it could almost be a film from, you know, say the 60s or something like that. Possibly even older. Yeah. Certainly in terms of the technology and the film stock and so on, obviously it was of its time, but in terms of the type of storytelling, yeah, yeah, it's it's a fairly timeless ghost story. And if this were made today, you know, if we think of a film like, I think it's Insidious or whatever, with the writer moving into the the Mm. house, yeah, it's going to be a family, but it's going to be, you know, a guy in his 30s is going to be a young, good-looking guy rather than an older guy in his 50s. I, I just don't think that... I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but um, maybe there are other examples of more modern films that feature this. But mm. I just think the casting is good because he's like, really carries it. Yeah. But I, I kind of question whether that would be the approach they'd take if they made that today. Well, I mean, George C. Scott was a big star at the time and having him in a film like this, as we mentioned at the, the top of the episode, lent a certain amount of weight to it. That partnership of uh, an older man and a younger woman, I think, was very common in media at the time. It's much less prevalent these days, as you say, but you know, it certainly didn't stand out as notable back when the film came out, I don't hmm. think. This is a film that had been on my list to see for quite some time because I'd read about it, I think maybe even just as I was flicking through IMDb or somewhere anyway that I'd first come across it, and thought, oh, this sounds quite nice. I love ghost stories anyway, so that was always going to be a big plus for me. But only finally got to see it recently when it appeared on Amazon Prime. Mm -hmm. I love it. It's great. It's one of the best films I've seen in a hell of a long time. I remember absolutely loving this film when I saw it in 1980 at the cinema. It scared the hell out of me. It's one of, I think, the last films I saw at the cinema that really scared me. I mean, there were a couple of others after that. I remember being quite scared by Poltergeist when I saw that at the cinema. But it's certainly one of the last horror films I can remember giving me chills like that. I don't necessarily think it's aged that well for a variety of reasons. The main one is what I touched upon earlier in the fact that a lot of the imagery in it and a lot of the ideas have been reused so many times that they now feel quite familiar. This, even in 1980, wasn't a groundbreaking film, but it used a lot of images like the ball going down the stairs that hadn't been seen before and made it really quite effective. The problem, I think, for a lot of people coming to it now, and I've discussed this with some of our listeners on on the Discord server who watched it recently, and they were very unimpressed by it. The reason is, I think, because so many things have borrowed from it since then. I remember having this experience myself when I was about 17, and I watched the Todd Browning Bela Lugosi Dracula for the first time on TV. I'd read about it for years, but I'd never actually seen it, watched it, and I thought, oh, okay, um, but I've seen all that stuff before. And 
it's because almost every single scene in this had found its way into popular culture that it had been parodied and pastiched to death. And there was nothing novel about it. There was nothing that really felt, I don't know, like something I hadn't seen before. And I think there's there's that real danger with with films that set templates that you go back to them years later and mm. it's just sort of, yeah, well, this is pretty ordinary. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree. A lot of the stuff we've seen in other places, I think the bottom line test is it's supposed to be creepy. Is it creepy? Yeah, it is, definitely. Because, I mean, I, I definitely found it creepy. Like I said, the first sort of... I don't know, quarter third i wasn't that engaged by it and i was kind of ready to not be giving it that great a review but then it kind of grabbed me with the way it handled the creepy elements were very effective and that's perhaps down to the the sound and the the music and the and the whole vibe of the place and the lead actor's performance and all those elements came together to bring those things which are now perhaps cliches but to actually give them some strength and effectiveness in this film I don't think there's actually anything original in the story itself. The story is about as well-born as you get. This is something that puzzled me some time back, Matt, when you were talking about how ghost stories were your favourite genre of horror because unlike so many other things, that there seemed to be so much you could do with them. Fundamentally, you do tend to get the same stories over and over again in ghost stories. And this one is as well-born as you get. It's someone who was wrongfully killed, trying to communicate, wanting revenge from beyond the grave, wanting justice for their death, wanting their body to be uncovered. We've seen that hundreds of times before the changeling. We've seen it hundreds of times since. It is as obvious as you get. I mean, it's a well-told story, but the story itself is really, really obvious and simple. If you go down to its, no pun intended, or bare bones of, of, of the skeleton mm. of the story, you could probably make that comparison with a lot of other types of genre film as well. I just think it's it's the mask that you put over it each time and how that can be varied. Oh, yeah. Even with such a basic template, you can still tell some very, very wildly different stories. But I think that's true of any horror tropes or any horror subgenres. I mean, you may not like, for example, slasher films or werewolf films or whatever, but I'd say exactly the same thing applies there, that as long as you bring originality to the storytelling and tell the story well, then it doesn't matter what the bones are, it's what you bring to it. There are only so many stories and only so many ideas out there what's important is telling them well that's one of the things i like particularly about this and think of the style of how it's done there are next to no jump scares there's no blood or gore for the sake of it it's very much a nice harmoniously put together film and it kind of ditches all the crap that i don't like about that kind of genre and then say so just keeps it really really nice for me so I, I love it it's a really really good film for me and i think in terms of gaming i think it's nice that the ghost isn't just an entity that you have to fight or mm. get rid of or that is a direct sort of antagonist all the time. A lot of the time it's down to things happening in the house, which we can sort of say have a root in the spirit, but like the doors opening and closing, the, the piano playing, the ball bouncing down the steps, the the various things that all the banging, you know, of the, well, the side of the bath as we learn, but the banging sounds. So it's kind of, weird manifestations in the house which aren't necessarily attacking the main character mm. they're kind of a ma maybe attacking their sanity but which i think unless you're in the scenario you've got we tend to look at the entity and sort of think well what powers have they got but we don't necessarily think of just making them create creepy effects like that necessarily yeah and i think that's that's a device that I'd be interested in making, you know, trying to make more of you know, in the game. And I think another useful gaming aspect of this is the dynamic of having, well, sort of an alliance or certainly that relationship between John and the ghost where it is sort of they're helping each other. But it's mm. something that is... As we see from the ghost's actions and his actions towards Claire, particularly with the wheelchair, it's still angry, it's still dangerous. And I think in games where you have perhaps investigators whose 
motivations are aligned with mythos entities or creatures or monsters, whatever, or even cultists, that you might occasionally have these uneasy alliances or you know, these symbiotic relationships. But at the same time, it's always useful reminding the players just what it is that they're in bed with and making sure that they never feel comfortable there. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to reach out from beyond the grave to thank you all. First of all, thank you to anyone who has ever listened to the podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed the podcast. And thank you very much to a number of new people whose names we shall whisper to them in the night. Yep, beginning with a thanks to Pete Burgess. And also thank you very much go out to the singular Felson Meyer. And thank you very much to Vanilla Tone. And thanks to Brother Zagon. And also thanks to Tobias Munter. And thank you very much to Eugene Doherty. And thanks to August Rusi. And thank you very much to Brent Clark. And thank you to the singular Benjamin. Okay, well, that wraps it up for another show. I guess the, the lesson is stay out of those attic rooms. If you find an old room at the top of your house that's all boarded up, just leave it. Why would you go in? Just leave it. Don't be curious. Because they're investigators, Paul. That's what their job is. They're supposed to wreck the joint. <laughs> Also, with real estate costs these days, can you really afford just to leave an empty room like that? If you find an attic room like that, surely you want to clear it all out, put a bed in there and rent it out to a lodger. Let them deal with the fucking ghost. That's fair. Airbnb haunting. Yeah. Ether BNB. All right. Well, until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Blasphemous tomes.com mm-hmm.